to the Energetic Radio Podcast. My name is Dale Sidebottom. Each week, I'll bring you inspirational guests who will help you bring fun, energy, and purpose into your lives. Let the show begin. Welcome to episode number 149 of the podcast. Today, I'm joined by Pat Armistead, who is the Joyologist. Now, if you haven't heard of Pat, I crossed paths with her on a social media post where Pat had told me since 1999, she had tried to write three handwritten letters or cards called glad mail, all right? Now, that means in that time, she thinks she has written close to 19,000 gratitude and kindness cards to people, which she calls glad mail. And this absolutely absolutely blew my mind. And that alone is why I had to have her on the podcast today. Now, Patty's an author. She's done thousands of keynote speakers around the world. She is an ultimate storyteller. And above that, she is just living life to the fullest. And not only that, making people realize how good life can be. And that is exactly what you're going to get in today's podcast. And I know um, I was just sitting back and thoroughly enjoying it. I guarantee you will at home today, guys. So episode 149, this delivers big time. Alrighty, everyone, welcome to the podcast. I am so excited today. I've got Pat Armistead. How are you, Pat? I'm absolutely wonderful, thank you. Now, somebody that's called the joyologist, I don't think you could ever not be amazing. Well, I am human. <laughs> you do have you do have down day, surely. <laughs> absolutely, yes. On that. I'm sure today is going to be an update. I'm really excited for this chat. And the main reason was, I think it was about two or three weeks ago, but um, you wrote a little post on one of my social media uh, sort of posts about um, gratitude and writing daily notes. And um, I'm just going to read what you wrote on my page. And as um, I've written three pieces of what I call glad mail every day since 1999, honoring, celebrating, congratulating, thanking those who have crossed my path. That's over 19,000 pieces of mail. Pat, that is insane. It is. <laughs> I, I was, even, I, even I think it's insane. <laughs> I was blown away. Um, and the, the post that I wrote about was um, a book by John Krellick that I use in a lot of my keynotes and presentations. That, um, he did a note for 365 days, so one day every yeah. year, whereas you've done 19,000. <clears> this is insane. Where, how, how did you start? Well, a long story, but uh, I lived in New Zealand for 20 years, and um, when I moved there, my first contract was with a private training provider, and things weren't good in the company. I was a team leader. Uh, <clears throat> attendance rate was 35%, and so were outcomes, so it's not good. <laughs> no, that's definitely and, not. <laughs> um, they had a process for disciplining their student base, and these hideous letters were meant to be sent out. <clears throat> and I sent them the first month that I was there. And after that, I thought, oh, you know, that is so not going to turn things around. So I actually refused to send them. And instead, I turned my focus back to those who came and decided I would get to know them and get to know them well. So I sat with the students and I sat with each student until I knew them well enough to write them a one-page letter honouring, congratulating, celebrating uh, the achievements that I saw them making. And a lot of these students were second-chance learners, so they weren't necessarily uh, really high uh, performance academic outcomes. However, you know, it was my discovery. You sit with people long enough 
and you can find a page of um, a writing. <clears throat> and as that began and it rolled out, um, I just did every day. Um, then, you know, those who came <laughs> um, had never received pieces of communication like that. They all lived in often impoverished environments, very much lower socioeconomic Auckland. And um, so the word spread over a two-year period and those who weren't coming returned. <laughs> um, and in that time frame, I was there two years, I wrote over 2,000 one-page letters. And when I left, the attendance rate was 85% and so were outcomes. And I really saw the degree to which, like the deep degree to which when you are totally focused on catching people, doing something right, looking for the good, honouring it in the moment. Um, I'm a strong advocate of the virtues, so using the virtues, using your languaging to honour and express your regard for another. Um, therein is the turning around. You know, we give people hope. So when I left that company, I thought, well, I probably can't go the rest of my life writing three full-page letters every day. Uh, it's actually quite a, um, an investment of time. Um, but I can create three cards. So that's been my practice. Um, usually it's physical cards. Sometimes it's become email or a phone call, but mostly I like, I like the tangible thing because it doesn't leave people's desks. It just sits there in front of them. Uh, often for many, many years, I had one lady ring me just before Christmas and I had given her a piece of glad mail at a conference in 2001 and she rang me. And she said, I just need you to know, she said, I've still got the bucket and spade you gave me and the piece of glad mail that was in it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the bucket and, and spade was to um, thank her for letting me come play in her sandpit. <laughs> oh, I love that. That is, that is awesome. And, and like you just said there that uh, it stays on their desk because people don't really see mail anymore. The only real thing that I get in mail is if I've gone a little bit silly on uh, internet shopping, Pat. <laughs> yes. bills. Well, yeah, I have I have glad mail and I also have sad mail. So sad mail's my invoice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we've all got those. <laughs> so yeah, and the I give it out now at conferences and I sit the night before a speaking engagement and I just ask myself, my higher self spirit, um what do people need to hear from me tomorrow? And I just allow it to come in. And so I write to three people and I give that mail out in various ways. Sometimes I might line somebody up and they've got a posty whistle and I'll tell them, now look, at, at this point in my presentation, I want you to blow the whistle like the old-fashioned posty and say, oh, we've got mail. <laughs> yeah, um, good. Or I'll orchestrate other ways. Um and, you know, it's really interesting, The especially in that environment, To uh, I often ask people who would like, who needs some glad mail today? And very often no one will put their hand up. And, and for me it demonstrates uh, where so many people are at, you know, the 
the degree to which we won't step out, we won't go into uh, a place that could be confronting, um, and and that whole idea of receiving. People are not not very good at receiving. No, they're, they're not. They shut themselves off, don't they? And um, Pat, I, I totally agree. What you've just said there, particularly with the students, um, where your attendance rates were 35%, which is really low, like you said, but the simple skills of listening, and that's what you did, but then also building relationships. And I don't think you can build positive relationships without listening and taking on board and then not only focusing on the negatives, because those letters originally were a negative thing. People getting in the mail because they're doing something wrong. Whereas if you focus on the positives, people want that. And if they haven't received it before, like you said, what'd you say? That was 85% at the end. It's really, really crazy. So those three lessons there are, are three that anybody can really adapt to any part of their life, can't they? Yes, you know, the, and one of the things I appreciated there, I, it was a very multicultural um, group, Maori and Pacific Island and Indian students, and I was the white guy, um, you know, fresh from Australia, and um, one of the things that, I don't know if you've seen the movie Once Were Warriors. Oh, I've seen it a lot, and it's uh, it's a great movie, but it's very graphical. Yes, and it's very true. Yep. So, you know, I knew it's like if I'm going to really craft some change here and change is needed, then I don't have to lose my values, but I've got to shift them. So um, church and sport was valued very highly by by those cultures, each in their, you know, various representations. Um, And I knew I had to be uh, shifting myself a bit to sit into that. And as I did so, um, I think students began to feel heard in perhaps a way they hadn't been heard before. And I'd been there about six or eight weeks and... I looked up one afternoon about three o'clock and there were about 16 students lined up outside my door, all in some kind of crisis. Um, There were twins who were being abused by their um, uh, pastor father. Um, There were others with, you know, various forms of abuse and difficulty, um, many being beaten up before they came to class. And so I was still there at nine o'clock finding housing for those twins. And the next day I went to see the manager (laughs) Uh, and my role there, I was team leader, but I also had classes to teach and papers to mark. And it just had reached a point very quickly where I can't effectively manage this if I've got to be doing all these other tasks. And um, bold as brass, I bowled into the general manager's office and said, Reed, it's not working, <laughs> and told him what had happened the previous night. And he said, oh, oh, Pat, he said, this has never happened before. And I said, well, maybe no one's listened before. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, so, it's so true, isn't it, that um, it probably hasn't happened because they hadn't allowed it to happen. They hadn't fostered the right environment for students to feel safe to actually come and tell these concerns or these issues that were happening. Yeah, yes. When I left that role, um, and I, I hunted this morning to see if I could find them, um, but I, I received every day for about a month after I'd left, I got a fax 
at my new place of employment, <laughs> asking me to come back. Oh, and, and was that from the students? From the students, yes. Oh, that's that's so touching, isn't it? And how did yes. that make you feel? Because obviously, if you're if you've written nineteen thousand uh, letters out, or mail, or cards, or anything glad mail, there, Pat. Um, obviously, you were quite good at receiving. So, how did that feel for you? And and then probably a second part of that question, going back to where we were before, why do people struggle so much to receive? Because it is something we need to do. Absolutely, the. I think very much it's part of our conditioning. We've all been brought up a certain way and um, we've got this huge, especially since I think the, you know, the last 20 years and technology's evolution, there's this huge comparisonitis thing going on. Um, And people look out and think, oh, I'm not going to say because what will they think of me, you know, because my circumstances are X, Y, Z. Yeah. And um, the, yeah, so, you know, to, um, I've been creating high-trust environments ever since I left school. Um, I was a nurse for the first 16 years of my life. And so in that role, you learn very quickly how to create a high-trust environment on the spot because you've got to go in and do, you know, sometimes some pretty nasty things. I'm sure you do. <laughs> so, um, and and I've pondered this a lot. It's like what's that magical element? And, you know, the word's bandied a lot, but I think it's still true. When people sense that you are authentic, when you're prepared to have the conversations that other people won't have, and you dare to do what others won't do. For example, while I was with that company, um, I continued to uh, have a teaching role. And for every lesson that I delivered, the last 15 minutes was typically uh, a mini session on uh, something out of Anthony Robbins' Awaken the Power Within, uh, inspirational, transformational focus. And I remember I'd been doing that for some time and the HR person just happened to walk past and came in and stood at the back of the room. And I could sense by her countenance that um, she was not impressed. <laughs> and uh, in the end, she could c- contain herself no longer. And she said, um, excuse me, Pat, she said, what do you think you're doing? And I said, oh, just a minute. I said, oh, well, we're, it's uh, Anthony Robbins, Awaken the Power Within, and we're up to page 271, uh, transformational vocabulary. And she said, see me in my office. <laughs> and so off I duly went at the end of class. And <laughs> she said to me, Pat, if you want to get on in this country, you better tone yourself down, girl. And she also said to me, you can't give these people hope. Oh, seriously? Seriously. How, how did so, you take that, Pat? Like, that's, that's, <laughs> that's shocking. Absolutely. So that didn't deter me in the least, of course. Um, but see, I also get she was, you know, is that really the person who she really is? It's part of her conditioning, you know, 
what are your circumstances that brought you to this place that you can look out and say that? Yeah, it's so it's so true, isn't it? Because normally um, their front is because of something they've experienced or they're going through themselves, and because they're not happy, it's like nobody else can or no one else can have hope. Yes. Mm, so true. Now, now, Pat, you are the master of storytelling, and I know that that's one of the key aspects of everything you do, um, and you've obviously just done that. You've engaged me there. I could listen to stories all day, and that <laughs> one was awesome. Now, what, what are the secrets to storytelling? Could you maybe what, – what are the key factors that make a really good story? I, I, I probably came across my first story when I went nursing, and um, the very first man that I ever bed-bathed, my patient, uh, was a man by the name of Bob Hall. And he'd been um, in a crane accident on a, a work site and literally crushed. He came into casualty, 35 broken bones, and they gathered around the table and said, he's not going to make it. But four hours passed and he was still alive, and so they took him to theatre and the conversation then was, well, poor beggar, he's probably going to be a vegetable. So uh, Bob came through the surgery. They trolled him back to recovery. And as they were trolling him there, the conversation was, um, you know, he'll, you know, still thinking he's going to be a vegetable. So Bob wakes up in recovery and reveals indeed he's not a vegetable. <laughs> And the conversation changed then, and they said, well, he'll never walk again. Bob Hall was in hospital the whole three years of my general nurse training. Wow. On and off, he went home for the odd weekend. And he walked. Um, while he was there, I actually saw Bob Hall every day that I was on duty, whether I was rostered on his floor or not. Bob walked on two sticks to my graduation ceremony after three years and at the end of the ceremony held up his hand and he said, I've actually got something to say. So I'm getting a bit scared by now because I've got a bit of an idea of what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and he comes out the front and he had this big scroll. It's about three feet long. And he starts reeling off all the tricks and pranks and terrible things that I did to him over that time. Every now and again, my poor mother's sitting in the front row and she'd go, oh, Patricia, you didn't. <laughs> and when he was finished, he turned to me and he said, you don't know what you did. And, look, I got that at a level back then, but at the turn of the century, I had a whole series of losses over a four-year period, and that's when I really got the significance of that. Where in that period, I turned up as my authentic, natural self. There was no plan that I'm going to um, delight Bob Hall every day. I was just being who I was. And because of who uh, my innate capacity for humour and stretching it sometimes, I'd be in matron's office quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, you know, I really get, it's like my, I showed up in my fullness then. There was my compassionate self, but there was also my capacity to make a shift, to make a change. And 
I was being totally authentic without intention. I, you know, I, I have a natural capacity to do that. And coming back to your question now, I think we've got to we'll take people on a journey, um, give them some sense of what it felt like, and the more we can keep it true to our own experiences from from the year 2000 through to now, I committed, because of all those losses, whatever comes up in my life now, I'm going to go to it. So that has shown me so much paradox and synchronicity. I've got a story for every time I step out, something happens. So um, we're really present to life and we kind of we shine and people see us and things happen. I remember once in New Zealand taking my car for a warrant of fitness and they said, oh, we're pretty busy today. Um, how about you go and have a coffee and we'll give you a ring when it's ready. So off I go and I'm quite short, five foot two. So I like wearing high heels. So I've got these stupid high heel sandals on. <laughs> the time I get to the cafe, I've got a blister. Uh, so I order my coffee and I whisper to the attendant, oh, I don't suppose you've got a Band-Aid? <laughs> he gives me a Band-Aid and I plop my things down on the table and sit down and put the Band-Aid on my foot. And when I stood up, some a man, this gorgeous man, had picked up my shoe and hold, is holding it towards me like they do in the shoe shop. showing like Cinderella. Off. Yes. <laughs> and he says... Is this yours, madam? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is him. This is the man. (laughs) He is gorgeous. He said, you know, the last time we did this, it was a glass slipper. And I'm going, yes, it is him. (laughs) He said, and you know where that ended, don't you? (laughs) I just just spoiled your punchline. I'm sorry about that, Pat. (laughs) And then out of left field comes this perfectly manicured hand, grabs him by the ear and pulls him off out of the shop and I had to chase him to get my shoe. (laughs) (laughs) Clearly clearly that was his wife. Um, But when we're present, those kinds of experiences are part of our lives and uh, before conferences, I remember before a paediatrician's conference, um, I wanted to demonstrate to them um, some of the skills you can learn from doing improv acting um, and, you know, being in intention, but not for a thing, just being in that place of intention. And, um, you know, you just step out into the street and things appear. There was a... Um, in Wellington at that very same conference, I thought, right, I'm just going to pop downtown and see what I can encounter and I'll bring it back for my next session. So I step out onto the main street in Wellington and there across the road is a lingerie shop and in the left window it's got buy the left cup and then in the right window it's got and get the right one free. (laughs) So I've got to go in there. So I go in the shop and there's this big, buxom, beautiful woman like the um, mother figure out of Babe. <laughs> and she's behind the counter. And as I walk in the door, she puts her two fingers in her mouth 
and she gives me this wolf whistle <laughs> and says, nice tits. <laughs> exactly. And do you know what she made? She made beautiful lingerie for women with breast cancer. Oh, isn't that lovely? And, you know, she was, in all of her way of being, she was borderline inappropriate. But because of her buxom beauty and her sheer, you know, good nature, it just oozed off her, (laughs) Um, then it was perfectly appropriate because, you know, why do we have to be severe in our countenance around people who might have cancer or are sick? or have a, you know, terminal illness. Um, Why do we suddenly have to go, you know, and withdraw? Um, So story story helps, you know, there's that authentic thing. I think there needs to be, it needs to be you and your experience with the world and um, the lessons that come. Yeah, so 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 true, but and I I could listen to those all day, and I know as you said, you've probably got a lot more, which is fantastic. But um, it all does come down to being present, and I think everything you do in life, if you're not present, you're really missing out. And um, like you've just mentioned, with everything there, and particularly the story of Bob Hall, I think that's that's a fascinating story, and a real credit to you. And probably where you've got to now, and everything you've done is is because you've been authentic. You've had that humour, you've been present, you've been able to do that um, in everything you've done. Now, for people listening along at home, if you could maybe just give three, and this is probably really hard from all your experience, everything you've done, but three tips for people or two or three tips to bring more joy and happiness into their day. Is it is it uh, being authentic? Is it having some humour? Is it laughing at yourself? What, what would you say to people that uh, maybe not feeling the joy every day? What, what, what could they do? I think... Um Find yourself a laughter icon. So that's some tangible thing that uh, you look at it and it makes you smile. I have a puppet called Doubting Thomas, and Doubting Thomas is my alter ego. My doubting self has plagued me, actually, all my life. So that gives me a wry grin. And one of the things that sustained me for nearly all my life, actually, is knowing what my peak moments are. So I love to speak, and when the lights go on for someone in the audience, it's like, yes, there's my moment. And I also love to paint or create. And when I'm painting or creating, I don't need anybody. There's just myself and the work. So finding whatever that is for you, you know, one or two peak moments, and then orchestrate to have enough of them so that you feel fulfilled. It's a, it's a very good it's a very good point and I do a lot of my presenting and everything I work on is all about play being present in the moment and creative and and for you painting that's your play because I can guarantee Pat when you're painting you're not thinking about anything else are you no 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 and the and you know one more to kind of round it off for three is you know being in service you know irrespective of our circumstances, when we can be a contribution to someone else, um, even a touch on the shoulder and saying, how are you really, Um, takes you out of yourself and, you know, science, uh, epigenetics and all of that recently now tells me anytime we're in that space, 
the frontal cortex of the brain is actually pouring oxytocin, which is that feel-good hormone. So you're creating that for yourself in the giving of a gesture even, uh, as well as for the person who's in receipt of your energy. Yeah, it's, it's so true. And I, I think kindness, it's free and I don't think enough people use it. Um, and also, like you've just mentioned, when you've got a purpose, um, I think you've got direction and you know your why. Um, so with that being said, everything you've got there, what, what gives you most satisfaction with everything you do, Pat? Where, um, what do you feel What do you feel so happy about with everything you do? Um, in 2004... I discovered my three core motivators. They were love, freedom, and spiritual intimacy. And I think it would be that spiritual intimacy, the capacity to engage with another um, and to just get that real physical sense of the flow, the repartee, the connection, um, so many people walk around with an emptiness in their heart space. There's something hollow there, something missing. Um, and the, you know, I think the answer to that is connection. Um, for those who look out and don't see hope, um, you know, we've got to shift their perception because that's all it is, it's just a perception. Uh, and easy for me to say that, I know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, when you're in that space, it's not so uh, easy to shift on your own sometimes. the um, My grandson, I have a six-year-old grandson, and, you know, he's writing now, and this little boy has come in with love in his heart, and he just draws hearts all the time and little messages. And I have one in front of me, Nana. I'm in love, L-U-F. Uh, <laughs> you are good for my heart. You know, how did he know? Do you know, for goodness me, at this age, to be that perceptive and that connected. Um, and he said, he said to me one day, Nana, he said, happiness and sadness lives in the heart, you know. <laughs> Really, da? Um, you know, so there, there is the wonder. Um, not so much this with, I'm reading a book, Come of Age, by Stephen Jenkinson, and the part I'm up to is about we have become addicted to growth. The personal development industry in the last 50 years has taken us on this incredible cycle and we're all just so consumed by growing in all areas. Um, and he questions that. <clears throat> and, you know, I'm on many levels tending to agree. Yes, we do need to grow and evolve, but there's this fervent and frantic pace of I've got to be better. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I'm not good enough. There's This isn't it. And, you know... Right here and now, you and I are it. 
Yeah, it's so it's so true, isn't it, Patton? And do you think that's because we're always chasing that connection, particularly with social media? We're always chasing that next like, that next follow. How many people know what we're doing? Whereas exactly what you've just mentioned there, it really does come down to human connection and meaningful relationships and being present, not in a fantasy world where you're only seeing five percent of everybody's life. That's the best part of their life. Like I'm not going to put on today where I had a bad three hours, I'll put on the five minutes where I did my hair, I looked unreal and I might have just gone to the gym. Is Do you think that's something that people only see the best of everybody these days that they compare themselves to that? Yes. The, I remember as, as I was growing joyology and it took some years because the world wasn't quite ready for a joyologist. <laughs> <laughs> I still love it, Pat. I think it's fantastic. And the... Um, I forget where I was going to go with that. Um, oh, I remember I was speaking at conferences. I'd been speaking at conferences for a year or two, and I had a nice little sports car, MX-5. Um, I always looked nice, and I had my signature hat uh, that I wear when I'm speaking, um, and I'd written my first book. Um, but I had consistently been living for the previous 12 months in my overdraft, and I decided, I don't know what was the deciding factor, but I, I decided I would share that, that whole scenario of, wow, she's up there on the stage and looking good, um, but in actual fact. And um, a woman came to me afterwards and she said, I want to thank you so much for sharing a reality of, you know, the full reality of your life. She said, we sat at the table last night and, decided we'd done all we can, we're going to have to sell the house. She said, but having heard you speak and, you know, what you shared, she said, I'm going to go home and we're going to find a way. And she rang me six weeks later and they had found a way. So it's in this no life is not meaningful, no life is not without purpose and everything about it has purpose. And when we share it all, that's when we give other people permission. Yeah. So so true, isn't it? Like and and by you getting up there, Pat, and and, and like you had the persona that you're dominating in life and, and I'm sure you were in a certain way, but when you looked at financials you weren't, but by you being open, honest and vulnerable, you've actually been able to change lives. Yes. Yes, you know, and the um I've had a lot of pain in my life, a lot of grief, a lot of loss. And the, you know, it, there are many things you could say about it, but it, it kind of awakens you to the reality of life. I know now who's in my audience. I know all the percentages for all the variables for everything, like, you know, all the different types of cancer number of people who get taken by sharks, number of people who drown in the sea, drown in swimming pools, children who drown, children with burns, on and on, people who've lost children. So anytime you get 100 people together in the room, that's who's there. And knowing that, then we're so much more equipped to really step into our own humanity Um and, you know, allow that vulnerable sharing because we can hold the space for everybody. Yeah. Yep. 
And that really does coming back down to probably exactly what you said when you were talking about your first, uh, you know, when you were in Auckland dealing with those sort of disadvantaged kids that um, building those relationships, you can only do that or show that vulnerability when you understand your audience and listening. And obviously being on stage, you can't listen, but by knowing out of those hundred people, what people have gone through, what trauma they had, their sort of background, it allows you to bond with them and build that trust, doesn't it? Yes, and you know the <laughs> the my learning this last twenty years, especially, has been for a long time when I was beginning, I would look up with awe and wonder at you know CEOs of major companies and. Um, Mike Hutchison, who was the MD of Saatchi and Saatchi in Auckland, um, I asked him, having summoned up much courage, <laughs> to be my mentor. And, you know, I was, I was so scared of that first meeting, I went and had some coaching um, because of who I thought he was, you know. It was like I had positioned him in this you know, unreachable space. And, you know, within the first five minutes of our conversation, he had said yes and yes to my request to, will you be my mentor and will you help me source funding? And he just said yes and yes. So um, the, you know, we, we assign people <laughs> in certain positions and, you know, this last 15 months I've been working with 450 senior leaders within a very big company here, 26,000 staff, and I have just been blown away time after time after time of the, the vulnerability that's in the room previously unshared. Yeah. But create the space for vulnerable sharing to be happening and repeatedly <clears throat> other men in the room would go, oh, my God, I didn't know that. Yeah. I'm so sorry. I didn't know that about you. It's so true, isn't it? Yes. But And, and like you just said there that um, unfortunately as humankinds we do prejudge and like you did with that mentor that um, you worried yourself and you worked yourself up and you thought he was this kind of person but really deep down he was a generous giving um, and, he, and he just wanted to help you out. And, you know, on another level, he, I mean, he um, – told me off when I said this, but, you know, I, I, I said one time, he was in an audience when I was presenting and uh, I made comment of it, uh, him being my mentor and I said, and, you know, I discovered he's just a bloke. <laughs> <laughs> His wife bought him a chainsaw for Christmas um, and he said out quite loud, well, I don't know about just a bloke, that. <laughs> <laughs> so he had a sense of humour too. Yes. Yeah. The most genial man I've ever met. Yeah, and I think that's great advice for anybody listening. If you if you don't have a mentor, then um, it doesn't have to be someone you know. Think about somebody you admire. And normally what I've found, Pat, by reaching out to people um, that are doing something great, they're, they're normally more than happy to help out people that are, you know, willing to ask for that help or that are showing a little bit of initiative. So I think that story there alone um, should really resonate with a lot of people. Now, Pat... I don't want to keep your whole day. Um, I've just got a couple of questions that I always like to sort of finish up with. And the first one is from everything you've done over your life, thousands of keynotes, books, um, 19,000 letters, teaching, uh, nursing, everything you've done, Pat. If you could look back to 18-year-old Pat and everything you've learned over your journey, if you could give yourself one bit of advice from everything you've done, what would that one bit of advice for 18-year-old Pat be? Um, 
Well, I want to say get prepared. She's going to be one hell of a ride. <laughs> <laughs> that is brilliant. <laughs> um, I think I would be say, also saying you are here to experience it all and you're going to. It's, uh, it, it, it is very nice and sometimes um, I, I don't think at that age you can really ex- – I don't think you would have expected to uh, have delivered thousands of keynotes and be working with the people we have. But um, I think it all comes back to like the, the key things you mentioned today, authentic uh, to yourself, being being – Having that humour and just being present and being yourself, I think that's so important. So, Pat, what a, I know you've still got a lot to give and um, the world's yours and you're still dominating, but what legacy do you want to leave? What do you want to be remembered for, the first ever geologist, joyologist? Yes, I think that's uh, a big part of it. And the a repeating pattern this last 20 years especially has been in the face of no agreement, I have managed to achieve remarkable things. So um, I'm writing my next book, Joyful Empowerment, The Only Way Out Is Through. Um, And I want people to be able to appreciate what is joyful empowerment? What does that mean, actually? Um, And to be able to harness that, to um, apply and, you know, use their gifts and talents when they're moving through difficult times. Yeah, because I, I think, like you just mentioned, when when things get tough, normally the fun, the laughter, the joy, that's the first thing to go when times get tough, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. unfortunately it is, but that's probably the that's exactly what you need during those times. Yeah. And, look, I go there too. I'm not kidding that I don't spiral down. Um, however, there's a level of awareness now. <laughs> And I'm able to use my Doubting Thomas site um, <clears throat> to say, where do you think you're going, Pat? <laughs> I love that. Now, Pat, people listening along, they want to get your book. They want to book you in to speak. Where can we find you? Probably the easiest place. I haven't transferred my website yet, but I'm back in Australia. But the website is still a New Zealand one. So joyology.co.nz and they'll find contact details and some information on there. Yeah, and beautiful. I've just got one final one for you. I was going through because I'll put, um, I'll also put the uh, not only the website but links for your socials as well, your Twitter and your Facebook page. Now, um, your Twitter account is Joyologist One. Does that mean somebody's beaten you to it? They did. Oh, Pat, come on! What what has happened there? Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm a victim of. My age in technology. Um, I'm I'm not the only geologist now. So whoever that first person was, um, yeah, they took the first one. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny, but uh, you are the number one. And um, I just from when you first commented on that Facebook post about the the three letters a day um, and just the the show of gratitude and not only that the kindness that then um, the dedication that that takes, Pat. That is something that people at home you don't have to go out and do that because. Pat, that's extreme, but I think that shows the person you are. And I know from just chatting to you today, your stories, uh, being present and everything that you've offered, people will be able to take so much away from this. So thank you from me for giving up your time to be on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed this and I know some of my listeners will as well. Thank you so much, Dale. Awesome to meet you today. <laughs>